let's go back a bit because I think context is important. When you think of you know each of the industrial revolutions that you know we have seen in human history, um, each revolution actually has been a net creator of jobs. The invention of electricity required electricians and communicators, by the way, who then would send uh, Morse code and had to learn to use a telegraph and so on. The, industri the, 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 uh, the second industrial revolution was about sort of mass um, manufacturing and the assembly line and those kinds of things while well, you needed machinists. Um, the third industrial revolution, which is around information technology, and I think the, 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 the phase in which we are is in fact, a, I think, a prolongation of the third industrial revolution um, obviously requires a different uh, a different skill set um, ultimately yes there there is going to be a displacement of jobs technology is going to replace some of the jobs that we do but I think of it as technology augmenting the way we work not replacing the way we work I come back to Future Launch to sort of put a finer point on this. One of the things that we acknowledge is that machines cannot and will not replace human beings. But ultimately, recognizing that we are vulnerable, it means that we need to think about how do we reskill and how do we make sure that our skills are current such that we can cope with the displacement uh, and the disruption that, that is coming. And what is rising to the top is this whole notion of skills as currency. And so how do you how do you sort of improve and grow your human skills, the soft skills, critical thinking, collaboration that we're going to talk about, uh, communication, creative uh, thinking, cultural dexterity, we're a nation of immigrants. How do we harness those, um, those human skills, translate them into currency so that as the world of work changes, we can now navigate the world of work and increase our mobility across that ever-changing workforce such that we future-proof ourselves. Again, back to RBC Future Launch. You know, it, it is a significant uh, ambition, um, but it is nothing without collaboration. Uh, internally across RBC, when I say nothing, it's impossible. Without significant collaboration across uh, RBC, the RBC Enterprise, which is 84,000 uh, people across the, the one, and it is impossible without collaboration externally because we rely on external partners to make future launch uh, happen. But to help us understand the power of, uh, of technology, um, one of the things that we did uh, to sort of legitimize our work and to inform our approach uh, was to um, commission a body of research uh, called uh, Humans Wanted, how youth can thrive in an era of disruption. And you can actually uh, download the report at rdc.com forward slash humans wanted. And what that research did was it looked at 2 million jobs and 300 job classifications to begin to understand the, the impact of technological disruption on jobs as they are designed and as they exist today, to begin to cluster those jobs and begin to understand the extent to which those jobs were vulnerable to, uh, to that disruption. We then took that research and we worked with data scientists, we worked with engineers, we worked with HR practitioners, we worked with policy analysts and government leaders, and we created using an algorithm, we created a tool called RBC Upskill that allows now individuals to 
do a skills assessment to understand the extent to which A, their jobs are potentially ripe for disruption, but that will also recommend jobs that your skills, because of your skills inventory, approximate you to, to, to other jobs. My point here is that collaboration, when done well, and, and technology, when introduced to those conversations, when it's done well, it can actually solve for some of the most pressing challenges of the day. This episode is brought to you by the Sea Tribe Festival. Sea Tribe reimagines the festival experience with the goal of bringing together innovative and creative people and proactive thinkers. By integrating a business conference with music performances, trendy fashion shows, intimate roundtable discussions, culinary experiences, wellness sessions, and artistic activations, Sea Tribe curates inspiring environments that help catalyze action. This episode is also brought to you by RBC Future Launch, a 10-year, $500 million commitment to help Canadian youth prepare for the jobs of tomorrow. They're moving beyond financial investment by engaging the public and private sectors to further understand the issue and make a significant impact on the lives of young Canadians. RBC Future Launch is a catalyst for change, bringing people together to co-create solutions so young people are better prepared for the future of work. Young people today are faced with three critical barriers they need to overcome to be successful. Solutions for lack of experience, solutions for lack of relevant skills, and solutions for lack of professional network and mentoring. Future Launch is a core part of RBC celebration of Canada 150 and is a result of a two year of conversations with young Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for having us all tonight. We're going to talk about collaboration in the digital future. Uh, our job up here is to hopefully uh, entertain you and leave you with some wisdom, uh, give you a sense of what's to come at the festival. And uh, your job is to uh, listen intently and then to ask great questions when you have them. Uh, we'll have some time for that at the end. Uh, if you need to get up and move around, feel free. If you have to go to the bathroom, we won't be offended. Uh, we hope uh, you'll, you'll think of some good questions along the way. Uh, but we're going to start with uh, a little bit of a conversation first about this topic. So I thought first I would just do some brief introductions to the panel, a brief introduction to the topic, and, uh, and then we'll get into some questions. So uh, my name is Mac Mail. I'm the co-founder of Taproot Publishing. We are a digital publisher based here in Edmonton. Uh, my co-founder Karen is up here in the front row uh, live tweeting, so feel free to have your phones out tweeting this conversation as well. Uh, we like to say that Taproot exists to help people understand the community, and we do that through a number of different publications, uh, one of which is highly relevant for this conversation, which is the Tech Roundup. It's a curated email newsletter that comes out every Tuesday morning. I know some of you in the audience are already readers, so now is the time that you turn to your neighbor and tell them to subscribe and how great it is. Um, I'm going to reference some of the stuff that we've curated about Edmonton over the last number of months in this conversation. So immediately to my left is Mark Beckles. He's the Senior Director of Youth Strategy and Innovation at RBC. And in this conversation, Mark brings more than 25 years experience in financial services. 
Uh, Mark is with us tonight from Toronto, so thanks for being here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, on the far end there is Robert Tyndale. He's an entrepreneur based here in Edmonton. You may know him as Bobby. Uh, he's got more than a decade of experience in marketing, brand development, and social media. He's the owner of a digital agency called Version Me Media. Uh, he's also a podcaster and a vlogger. You can see he had the camera set up over there. And he features interviews with uh, local and international tastemakers. Welcome. And then Tom Sides is a technology partner here at Denton's, so thank you for hosting us in this great space. And Tom brings extensive legal experience in tech and intellectual property and privacy, all of which are very important for this conversation. So you have all probably read the introduction. Uh, I won't reread that for you here, but you'll recall that one of the key phrases in there was this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. And so that's going to help frame our conversation tonight around um, collaboration and, and the sort of digital age that we live in. And so I thought I should first just do a little bit of brief history for you all so we all are on the same page. So the first industrial revolution was around the late 1700s, really centered around mechanization and the steam engine. Second industrial revolution was a century later in the late 1800s. This was really characterized by mass production and electricity. Third Industrial Revolution is really the one that we're still kind of on the edge of, right? Started in the 1960s with the semiconductor and personal computing and, and a little bit later the internet. And so this fourth industrial revolution that people talk about is typically characterized by things like artificial intelligence, the internet of things, you know, nanotechnology, biotech. Uh, I think one of the most central ideas to it though is the speed of change, right? The amount that has happened in such a short period of time. And there's a futurist, Ray Kurzweil, who captures this in what he calls the law of accelerating returns. And he argues that technological change is actually exponential. And this is really important because humans are terrible at understanding exponential change. We generally overestimate what we can do in a short period of time and underestimate what we can do in the long term. And so we're pretty ill-equipped to deal with the type of change that we're seeing now in this so-called fourth industrial revolution. Uh, I wanted to just read one quick quote here from um, a critic of all of the technological changes going on. You may have heard of Andrew Keane. Yep. He's written a number of books on this topic. Um, uh, most recently in How to Fix the Future, he said, everything is getting perpetually upgraded except us. What it means to be human today is bound up in our relationship with network technology, particularly thinking machines. If there is to be a new renaissance, this relationship with smart tech will be the core of its new humanism. So I thought that was really interesting to frame sort of this idea around collaboration because you need humans to collaborate. What if there's no human jobs needed to do? So we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to turn it over to you three to give us your thoughts on this, just at a very high level, what does the fourth industrial revolution mean to you? And maybe if you have a personal connection to that. So Mark, maybe we can start with you. Sure, thank you. Well, first, uh, Mac, let me thank you for that kind introduction and to C-Tribe for giving RBC Future Launch an opportunity to partner uh, with you. And we're really looking forward to the, to the festival. Um, um, RBC Future Launch, just for context, is RBC's most ambitious um, community investment uh, in the history of RBC, where over the next 10 years, we are investing $500 million to help prepare uh, Canadian youth for the future of work. 
and really that is you know intended to help future-proof young people um, with respect to the impact that um, technological disruption is having on jobs, how we live, how we work, how we play, and how we as a nation then uh, compete to fuel Canada's economic uh, prosperity. And we can talk a little bit more about that uh, as the night progresses. But Matt, to your point, when I think about the fourth uh, industrial revolution, I think about velocity, speed. And sometimes it feels as though we are pulling the future forward as opposed to driving toward the future because of the rate at which the disruption uh, is, is happening. We live at a time where um, technology and technological advances are obsolete very shortly after they are uh, invented. Um, and yet, technology has the uh, profound uh, promise of impacting the way we live and the way we interact, the way we collaborate uh, on a scale which, if harnessed uh, for good, can actually sort of attenuate and accelerate a really great human experiences. And, and by that I mean, you know, when we think of the impact of technology on education, on healthcare, um, on uh, biology, on a whole range of different things, immigration, um, demographics. If we get it right, um, technology can be a great thing. Advances in technology can be a great thing. And that is borne out by research that we published last February in a report called Humans Wanted that acknowledges that while technology is going to uh, you know, impact jobs as we know them today, which is to say about 25% of jobs as we know them today are going to be impacted by technology, there's going to be a net creation of about 2.4 million new jobs as a result of technological innovation in Canada. So that's a good thing and a bad thing. A bad thing in the sense that those 2.4 million jobs, if we cannot make sure that you know future generations are right skilled for those opportunities, and unless we can harness um, those opportunities, it has real implications for Canada. So how do we, through Future Launch and through collaborating across industry and um, sectors, be it government, uh, think tanks, um, and a number of partners, including charitable, the charitable sector, unless we can figure out a way to ensure that we prepare that next generation for the jobs of tomorrow, we will miss out on that opportunity. Thanks very much. That was good. <laughs> I'll follow it up. Well, yeah. I'm going to follow it up by, uh, and I've done a presentation before that starts with the first industrial revolution, and I'm not going to walk you through the whole history, but I, I find it kind of interesting because sometimes there's quotes, and I found some from people worried about technological developments in the 1700s, that if you change uh, some of the here and befores and, and uh, other old English language, you would say, oh, those are very similar or resonating with people now in terms of the concern of technological development. Uh, anybody remember from their history lessons the Luddites? Well, they, they, were, they were concerned about uh, destroying equipment and technology because they were concerned about the impact that it had on jobs. And, and that was very real for people at the time. And, and so now when you fast forward to today's era, that's often what you hear. People are concerned about uh, jobs being lost. And I think we did okay. I mean, relatively speaking, it's hard to judge uh, three, four hundred years of history. But I think people evolved into different kinds of jobs that were created at that time because of uh, you know the steam engine 
mentioned being created the the gin that was the cotton ginny mill in, in textiles it was you know it was huge at the time and it disrupted the economies uh, people were 80 percent rural generally at that time and in a matter of uh, decades it was like 20 percent uh, uh, of them were rural it, it, it's just incredible the changes that have happened so I I sometimes think I mean in terms of our history to contrast the two they're not that far apart um, gosh even anyways amazing technological developments uh, I know there's lots of dystopian views out there and I think Oftentimes, the negativity is because people don't know enough about it. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I, I have a very positive view about uh, AI, machine learning, and what it's going to bring to our economy and, and allow us to be more human, I think. Cognitive abilities are still something I think that we have that uh, is, depends on the experts. They're, they're just futurists now that would say that uh, machines will compete with us in that respect. But I still think there's a, a role for us. I'm not, I think it's an important role. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I mean, it's kind of fun to get into those debates, right? Uh, I'm, I'm less concerned. Uh, uh, sorry, are there any American Republicans, Trump fans here? Because I'm about to make a bit of a shot at Mr. Trump. So in terms of people being concerned with AI about uh, automated weapons systems, I think i trust that more than I would Mr. Trump in terms of who could push a button to send us into an Armageddon. Just saying. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, when I kind of really think about like you know the revolution that's with us, um, I really think like it's important to also understand in the context of how it's like sort of working into our lives right now. So looking forward is clearly always important to be prepared and moving, um, you know, strategically. But with my agency, um, we do we're a small marketing firm where we create content and work with businesses around mapping and navigating this whole digital space. And one of the things that when I kind of think about the revolution, I always think about how can we just manage and work within like the confines of now. And so that's kind of like taking advantage of all the tools and things that are around us and really associating with um, obviously like mobile or all these, you know, mobile devices that are with us, um, utilizing them and just bottom line, like taking advantage of the now um, in reflection to sort of this like revolution. So sometimes, you know, with futurists kind of planning and projecting when it comes to sort of job creations um, with these new industries or all the way down to, um, you know, really nailing sort of where the roadmap is for each industry set. That I think it's really important just to, you know, be self-aware of like where we are and how we can utilize technology in terms of solving some of our current problems of everything. So you guys have already kind of gone there with the job conversation, so let's dive into that a little bit more. As you, as you mentioned, Tom, like usually there's a dystopian view around all of this technology that maybe none of us will have uh, jobs in the future. So um, if you want to read more about that, uh, there's an author, Martin Ford, who's written a number of books on this topic, actually. One is called Rise of the Robots, which is a very, very popular book kind of addressing this topic. Um, you can also check out our website called willrobotstakemyjob.com. Uh, and it's based on a academic paper from 2013, and they estimate the probability that 700 plus jobs will be computerized in the next couple of decades. So I took the liberty of checking all of your jobs. And this is what it says. So accountants, I know you're maybe not an accountant, but in that industry, 94% chance of being replaced. But the text that comes up when you plug in that job is, you are doomed. Oh. Lawyers, only 4%. <laughs> 
so you're good. Marketing managers only 1.4%, and advertising promotions only 4%, so you guys are safe. <laughs> Those of you in the room. I have a plan, though. You know, so, so tell me more about that. What, do you think your jobs will be replaced, and what do you think about this idea that robots are going to take our jobs? So thank you, Matt, for being so hopeful. Where I'm at. Um, let's go back a bit because I think context is important. When you think of, you know, each of the industrial revolutions that you know we have seen in human history, um, each revolution actually has been a net creator of jobs. The invention of electricity required electricians and communicators, by the way, who then would send uh, Morse code and had to learn to use the telegraph and so on. The, industri the, 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 uh, the second industrial revolution was about sort of mass um, manufacturing and the assembly line and those kinds of things while you needed machinists. Um, the third industrial revolution, which is around information technology, and I think the, 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 the the phase in which we are is, in fact, a, I think a prolongation of the third industrial revolution. Um, obviously, requires a different, uh, a different skill set. Um, ultimately, yes, there there is going to be a displacement of jobs. Technology is going to replace some of the jobs that we do, but I think of it as technology augmenting the way we work, not replacing the way we work. I come back to Future Launch to sort of put a finer point on this. One of the things that we acknowledge is that machines cannot and will not replace human beings. But ultimately, recognizing that we are vulnerable, it means that we need to think about how do we reskill and how do we make sure that our skills are current such that we can cope with the displacement uh, and the disruption that, that is coming. And what is rising to the top is this whole notion of skills as currency. And so how do, you, how do you sort of improve and grow your human skills, the soft skills, critical thinking, collaboration that we're going to talk about, uh, communication, creative uh, thinking, cultural dexterity, we're a nation of immigrants. How do we harness those, um, those human skills, translate them into currency so that as the world of work changes, we can now navigate the world of work and increase our mobility across that ever-changing workforce such that we future-proof ourselves? would be my answer to that question. Well, I want to talk about it relative to my profession and, and Amir Reshef. Anybody know Amir in the room? Amir, put your hand in. Yeah, you're, you're very famous around Edmonton for good reasons. I used to work with uh, Amir a lot in the past and uh, spent a lot of time with him. And uh, I think I gave him a fair shake. Right? I think we have a pretty good relationship. And why that's relevant is, is Amir uh, working on some large transactions figured out and this is where innovation comes from, and it's, it's really important. This is a personal experience for me. Uh, working with Amir, he got to work on these really large transactions, and you'd have four or five parties. They'd be represented by lawyers and accountants and investment bankers, and, and it's very complicated all in the, the day, the paper, but even now, digitally, it's still quite complicated. So uh, Amir, he kind of he, he held his frustration to himself, I think, for the most part, but he, he thought, damn, there's got to be a better way to do this. So uh, he worked at our firm, he left and created his own company, and 
it's called Deal Closer. I don't mind advertising for you, Americans. I think you've done a wonderful job. But it just shows you the innovation that's uh, come up in terms of Amir from personal experience, finding out how something could be disrupted. And it's what's happening in my profession. And in fact, as you know, generally any, any industry, profession, et cetera, that's highly data driven, where there's rich data, uh, they're going to be the ones that are going to be disrupted the most. I, I've actually read numbers that are higher than 4% for lawyers, but 4% uh, okay. Um, I'm okay with that. Um, so we're, we're seeing more and more disruption in the legal industry. A lot of us cut our teeth as uh, Amir did on due diligence where you're pouring through tons of documents you know, with your eyes and you're recording things like right of first refusal, non-competition provisions, all very important matters if you're a company looking to acquire other companies wanting to know if you're precluded or restricted in some manner. And so we would, or Amir would, and I did it too when I was junior Amir, um, we'd pour through all these documents and it's painstaking, right? Anyway, you did a good job in the physical world uh, too, Amir. So anyway, he, he's developed something. We're seeing more and more technologies that are disrupting uh, the practice of law. And some of them, as you might know, it's, it's interesting because it's more of a tool. There's, there's some software out there. I wouldn't say it's AI, but it's certainly software that will uh, basically look at a lot of cases around the world in a relevant subject matter area. And as you know, you really have to reduce it down to what's relevant to get a, a good search result back. Um, but you know, in litigation with a lot of these facts, you're getting information maybe in front of your desk to say, okay, with these facts and uh, the laws it is, 90% uh, chance that the result will be X, for example. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but it's that kind of technology that's developing the legal business that's really helping with the predictive aspect. But I think that's where the human factor comes in, because I still think it's going to be important in terms of the cognitive aspect. You know, juries still exist. They probably will still exist, being able to look at people. Uh, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm not a sociologist, but it's when we're having a conversation like this and there's a conversation in terms of words that are exchanged but there's all the, the body language and what's not said. Anyway, it's, it's pretty important when it comes to our business. So, Amir, you're not going to totally disrupt the, the whole business. I mean, you're, you've got a part of it. Anyway, I don't want to blather on, but uh, there, there's a ton of it. In fact, I will make a bit of a pitch for our firm. Now, a lot of companies do this now where you don't just look and say, shit, we're being disrupted. Just there, fuck. That's a legal word, by the way. And, uh, so we, uh, we created our own company is called Next Law Labs, and uh, Amir, you know about it, and, and its mission, and it's it's slow, Amir, I know it's taking a while, but it's to look how our profession is being disrupted instead of just waiting for that to happen. We're investing in companies, we're, we're talking to people in the community to find out what's coming so that we can participate in it in, in a meaningful way as opposed to just reacting. So that's what we're trying to do, early stages still, but uh, I, I think it's important. I, I used to work at a company called Intuit, maybe people know TurboTax, so it also created years ago when I was there a, uh, I don't know that it works so well because a lot of you people are entrepreneurial so the typical uh, entrepreneur starts with you know not much money and begging for favors and uh, money from your parents and, and so into it. Anybody from into it, I'm not going to slag it. Um, but it was it was kind of tough because we set off up this disruptive lab and we're paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars to disrupt the company. It worked modestly but didn't produce the results because I don't think people were hungry enough. Just my view. Over you, Bobby. <laughs>
So um, that's actually a really interesting stats, Mac, in regards to you know how each position, each job, and one point you said one point four percent for marketing managers. For marketing managers, that's yeah. interesting. So I mean, I, I can imagine the reason behind that is with all this technology, with all these waves of platforms, whether it's around VR, AR, videos, photos, whatever, accordingly. You know, a lot of businesses and companies require individuals, managers, teams to really help operate and navigate the space. And like, for example, like who here, like who here understands or knows what's 5G? You can raise your hand. So like, oh, only a third of the room. So for people who don't know what 5G is, that's gonna be the next wave of mobile device where essentially, in terms of communication, it's going to be super fast, allowing people to basically translate data at real time. And so what does that mean? That means essentially like doctors are going to be able to control robots from across the world and like basically be able to operate on people. And essentially how that plays out for like the everyday activities is one of the items my company does is we host events with different brands and different um, platforms around the city. So just this past uh, summer, we teamed up with Moet and we hosted events at, called Moet Grande at the Hotel Mac. And what made that event and experience really interesting is for everyone at home who could not consume that event or consume sort of the content associated with that, is in the future, possibly next year or in 2021, is we're gonna be able to like live stream that event in real time. So what's gonna be happening is people are gonna be like experiencing things digitally and physically in sort of real time, and people are gonna to have to participate in that and manage it and kind of create programs around it. So, you know, when it comes to sort of the opportunity of job creation, in the whole digital space of um, agencies or freelancers, you're gonna see an explosion. And also, as we're like speaking to like that whole VR technology, which I recommend everyone check out in the back there, that whole space is gonna require content and information, it's gonna require management teams, it's gonna require communication teams, and it's gonna need a full amount of services to kind of correlate and create those VR experiences and allow people to enjoy them and experience different things. So, I mean, in my line of work, it's just open field, it's just amazing. And the way that we kind of stay ahead of the curve is we're constantly testing and trying different things. So, um, as Matt um, mentioned, I have a podcast, and during this podcast, what we do to kind of make it a little bit more engaging and a different experience is we live stream everything in a 360 format. So it allows everyone to kind of see the room that we're in, sees the people as everyone's talking, being interviewed, and it's a way for us to dabble in that space of 360 content that is not that popular, it's by no means mainstream, but it allows us to just quickly navigate, get a firm understanding of what's going on in that space, and then hopefully when everyone, or when VR goes kind of widespread to the whole community, um, we'll at least be on the forefront and understand how to utilize it while still playing in the current space, which is all about videos, photos, and um, original content creation. So let's turn a little bit more then to the application of those things to collaboration then, right? So we're collaborating, we've got two people or two organizations, we've got some shared goals, we're trying to get something done. We have all kinds of tools at our disposal now, right? I'm sure we've all been on terrible conference calls. Uh, maybe you've been to an event where they have those robots, things driving around and somebody's controlling them from afar. Um, we have tools like Slack now and, and Microsoft Teams and these tools that are supposed to help us collaborate and 
maybe sometimes get used more for random chatting all day long instead of working. Um, and as you guys already mentioned, there's something about face-to-face -face and that sort of body language and, and the interaction that you have with somebody else right in front of you. So some of the benefits of these new technologies are things like, you know, maybe we avoid some of the discrimination that happens when you don't see the person's race or age or those types of things. Maybe it's hidden behind an avatar. That can be a positive thing. Uh, but can we really collaborate effectively, do you think? And I want you to sort of briefly answer this based on your own experience and, and your industry. And Bobby, maybe we'll start with you this time. Yeah, so I think 100% and I'll be all. So one of the cool things that allows people to collaborate because of technology is if you needed to have a designer, there's so many different platforms in terms of the internet things from designers um, to photographers, you can have so many different forums and mediums to kind of carry workers or individuals that you might need to allow you to kind of produce whatever product service that you're trying to do. So because of technology, we're able like instantaneously um, able to kind of connect to different groups, individuals to achieve whatever goals or results that we want. And that can manifest in so many different ways. So like a prime example is there's a, one of my clients has this festival called Vignette Showcase. And one of the things that they do, which is really interesting, is they get interior designers, contractors, and visual artists to kind of collaborate to build these beautiful spaces. And last year, what they did for the judging, which was really interesting and phenomenal, is there's these 360 cameras that are able to like take pictures of all entire rooms. And basically, you have like a path where you can follow and check out each room or its installation in like a 360 format or in a 2D format. So you see that a lot in like the real estate industry. So I'm sure you guys have seen sort of how you can tour a home in a 360 format and see all the spaces. Well, you do that through venues and things like that. So this group was able to secure judges that were based out of New, like New York, um, LA, and also too in Toronto, Montreal, who all were able to cast, check out each installation, work with each team to kind of rate what they thought was awesome, what was their opinion on it, and then they had a world, like a world casted judge panel all through technology, because how else could you see or consume this content or this information or these installations? So right now, like the byproduct of technology is going to be collaboration at scale, and you're just going to see just more interesting things accordingly. Well, my perspective, and I think it's in line, well, I know it's in line with what Sea Tribe's all about is, and it relates to a project I worked on a couple of years ago, and that was to bring high-speed internet to First Nations communities in Manitoba. So, you know, we talk a lot about this, I don't mean to be, as I said, a downer about it, but there's a lot of people, in, in fact, it, it kind of surprised me in terms of spending money on telecommunications for First Nations people in Manitoba, because a lot of them don't have uh, facilities to go to the washroom and running water. So anyway, as a society, we're still prioritizing things, and don't lecture you guys, it's great that we have access to this technology, 5G, Bobby, you mentioned, I mean, it's great that we can conduct business. When we get to that, I think it's wonderful and I agree it's a, a great collaborative tool, but I do worry about people that are getting left behind. These are people in our own country, and so uh, uh, Sarah was talking about Africa, and I mean, there's many countries we could talk about. There's going to be people left behind in terms of participating in the cool aspects, the collaborative aspects that technology allows all of us to do. So anyway, I just, I just think it's important that we're mindful of that as we think about uh, all the, the cool technological collaborative tools that we have at our at our disposal. 
the important point there, Tom. I, I would say, you know, I think about, again, back to RBC Future Launch, you know, it, it is a significant uh, ambition, um, but it is nothing without collaboration. Uh, internally across RBC, when I say nothing, it's impossible. Without significant collaboration across uh, RBC, the RBC Enterprise, which is 84,000 uh, people across the, the globe, one, and it is impossible without collaboration externally, because we rely on external partners to make future launch uh, happen. But to help us understand the power of, uh, of technology, um, one of the things that we did uh, to sort of legitimize uh, our work and, and to inform our approach uh, was to um, commission a body of research uh, called uh, Humans Wanted, how youth can thrive in an, er an era of disruption. And you can actually uh, download the report at rbc.com forward slash humans wanted. And what that research did was it looked at 2 million jobs and 300 job classifications to begin to understand the, the impact of technological disruption on jobs as they are designed and as they exist today, to begin to cluster those jobs, to begin to understand the extent to which those jobs were vulnerable to, uh, to uh, disruption. We then took that research and we worked with data scientists, we worked with engineers, we worked with HR practitioners, we worked with policy analysts and government leaders, and we created, using an algorithm, we created a tool called RBC Upskill that allows now individuals to do a skills assessment to understand the extent to which a, their jobs are potentially ripe for disruption, but that tool also recommends jobs that your skills, because of your skills inventory, approximate you to, to, to other jobs. My point here is that collaboration, when done well, and, and technology, when introduced to those, those conversations, when it's done well, it can actually solve for some of the most pressing challenges of the day. So that's really interesting. I like that uh, that idea that um, there's a tool available to people yeah. to better understand the impact of this. The flip side, perhaps, of using some of these tools often is that there's a trade-off, and that trade-off in most cases tends to be our privacy, right? In order to take advantage of all the tools that are available to us for this digital collaboration, we're in a lot of cases using something that is built by one of the big five tech companies. And we often don't pay for it directly. We pay for it through uh, our data. Mm -hmm. you know, the data is what's really important is driving a lot of this uh, machine learning based uh, collaborative tools. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on, on data privacy in, in your industries and, and sort of the, the impact of that? What kinds of things have you seen related to um, people having to trade privacy in order to take advantage of these tools? And maybe, Tom, do you want to start? So I think you've probably heard the term privacy paradox. I think it's what we all face because people want quick access to everything. I, I think that's what it's got all of us. Uh, people talk about ADHD. I think we all have it because we need technology. When do we need it? RFN, right? And so people look at websites and you know, we, we get the scroll through terms of service, uh, privacy policy, and people generally want access to the website right away. So they, they will generally unclick, I agree, and, and you're in, and you're not sure of what the privacy scenario is that you just agreed to. So I would say for sure that is affecting all of us. Um, a lot of people here probably heard of GDPR. 
it's you know it's in Europe. Uh, it's their uh, privacy regime. Uh, our Canadian government is required to look at it and adopt a lot of the requirements of GDPR because it goes back to trade. When we first adopted our privacy legislation, it was primarily because the Europeans said this is important to us. We're not going to trade with you, Canada, uh, other countries, unless you have substantially similar legislation to protect the privacy of Europeans' data, etc. I don't want to bore you, but that's that's coming our way, and and it's interesting to me. I mean, I practice an area because there's a conflict, or there's going to be a conflict between AI in terms of what it can do and what the GDPR is looking to do, because it's it's a matter. And from a consumer perspective, I think a lot of people might support it, especially if maybe you're in California. I think they would definitely whole hog endorse it. But it's going to require you as the uh, the company, the Microsofts, the uh, uh, you know uh, all the different companies that are in the digital space to uh, explain to you before they get their consent what they're using your information for, how it's going to be used with you know. So it's a lot more detailed than currently is the case. So it, you can see the collision between what AI does in terms of the inventiveness of it and the different ways you can quickly use people's information with legislation that's layering on top of it and it's coming to Canada and the U.S. Uh, as you know, I don't want to get into their politics, but they generally don't have privacy laws. They they adopt the requirements that are necessary to conduct business on a case-by-case -case basis, but it will require a response to what is coming this way. It, it is going to be a collision. Uh, it's quite interesting, I think, for me, and I think we all have to deal with it. Um, so there you have it. Think about it. And, um, you know, when it, when it comes to privacy, from like a consumer standpoint, like, I just, I just don't believe in it. And, and the reason why I don't believe in it is like right now, I'm kind of curious in this room, how many people actually read the privacy, whether it's around apps you download all the way down to websites you check out? Like who's read that detailed information? And that's so, zero. So what customers <laughs> have to say they have, <laughs> yeah. whether we have or not. And so like because of that, like that just proves that like if any business company platform is gonna provide us with a service that we want, I mean, we're gonna click accept, we're gonna click yes, and we're just going to go with the flow. And because that's the culture of things, you know, when there's moments in time, and we've all heard on the headlines when it comes to Facebook and the privacy breaches, you know, there was like a running joke that people were complaining about privacy breaches and how they're gonna leave Facebook on Instagram when Instagram owns Facebook, <laughs> you know, or sorry, when Facebook owns Instagram. So no matter what, we're all caught in the same loops where a lot of these big companies and these big businesses and tech companies, I mean, they already have the data on us. They have the information on us. And so when it comes to sort of privacy, I think that's just a, it's an idea that yes, it's very important and yes, we're all mindful of it, but to be honest, clearly, and as everyone in this room has not read, not a single person has read any of the privacy details, we don't care, because we don't read it. <laughs> but yeah, that's just, that's just my thoughts when it comes to privacy. And, and whenever, like I've never had a client ask about their privacy or ask if they post on these platforms like Instagram, who owns the rights to these pictures or these visuals, like that's never been a conversation. And I really don't think that ever will be a conversation just because there's nothing we can do. Either we don't participate on those platforms, which that's a choice and we all can do, or because of the acceleration of technology, we just continue hitting that accept and then moving forward. I think we can all agree that we can blame the lawyers for the length of those breaks. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I digress. Um, 
I would say that if I come back to RBC Future Launch, it really has challenged us to think about how we operate as a bank, as an employer, uh, as a corporate citizen, and of course, as a brand. And, and so my purview is that of a corporate citizen as you know the sort of the head of um, uh, RBC Future Launch. Um, I function sort of within our corporate citizenship team. And from a privacy perspective, we have been intentional about not collecting user information uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, the program focuses on young people between the ages of 15 to 29. And we are also mindful that as a 15-year-old, you, you are not at the age of majority, and therefore we cannot legally collect uh, information. But more fundamentally, you know, we want to be true to our purpose, and we want to make sure that people, users, of the tools that we uh, put out there do not have uh, a suspicion of our of our intent and so you know by creating that intentional privacy screen by not collecting uh, user information uh, we insulate ourselves hopefully to some degree from the skeptics who might say well you know RBC is just doing this to acquire clients and to you know improve its brand presence in the market and to compete against the other FIs and so on you know there are some will still draw that conclusion, uh, but we have tried desperately and intentionally to remain true to our ambition of helping youth um, succeed in the future. So I wonder how much of the uh, not reading of those agreements is because they're long, or how much of it is partly just down to the user experience, right? They're not presented in a very approachable way for an average human being to read, right? So maybe there's an opportunity for the designers in the room to help address that. Um, okay, so I think before we wrap up the our part and turn it over to you for questions, we have to talk a little bit more about artificial intelligence. It's the thing that is behind a lot of the changes that we're seeing and a lot of the tools and things that we're using for collaboration. Here in Edmonton, we're one of the top five research centers in the world for artificial intelligence, so this is a place that a lot of these uh, developments are coming from, um, and so I think it behooves us to both recognize that and celebrate it, but also to be leaders potentially in some of the risks that come along with artificial intelligence and relying on um, computers and algorithms to do some of the things that they do for us to help us do this collaboration. So you probably all heard about um, the AI-based tool, the ML tool that Amazon had uh, to help it filter job applications, and for a while there they didn't hire any women because the algorithm said if you were a female, you were not likely to succeed at Amazon. That's a big problem. That's one of them. Um, there's lots of other examples. I'm curious to know from each of you about your industries. What do you see are some of the risks of machine learning? We could talk a bit about the opportunities, but really, what are, what are the risks that you see, maybe in finance or in, in law or in communication marketing? You know, Financial services um, are really around, uh, are based on sort of building great client relationships. And uh, to the extent that artificial intelligence and or machine learning get in the way of delivering exceptional client experiences, I think you begin to have a problem. You know, I'm of that generation that doesn't want to walk into a bank and talk to a robot. But you know, they're Gen, Gen Z, are digital natives. They've grown up with technology. 
uh, you know, and, and machines and so on, and you know, they might be quite comfortable with that. I would say that there is definitely a place for uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in the back office to improve the speed and accuracy with which we do and can do basic administrative functions so that the end user experience is vastly improved. And you continue to see significant enhancements in our online experience, in our mobile experience as we interact with our, with our bankers, whomever they may be, precisely because in the back end, there are powerful algorithms and uh, artificial intelligence uh, at work in a way that is intended to improve uh, the experience that we, that we uh, receive, the speed at which we can transact, the speed at which we can uh, move money, the, the speed at which we can sort of decision uh, credit um, uh, or risk. Um, a lot of that is now and can be informed by uh, technology that is operating in, in the background. And, and again, not to put too fine a point on it, but each of us has uh, probably has a smartphone. The smartphone that each of you has uh, has more computing power than the computer that put Neil Armstrong on the moon. Just think about that for a second. And so to that I say, why wouldn't we harness that kind of technology to improve uh, the way in which we transact in the spaces in which we live, work, and play? So on, on this topic, I like to talk about intellectual property law. And, and I was mindful of something you said about, uh, was it BMO that had contributed $5 million to the arts? Uh, have any of you ever, um, have you seen any uh, computer-generated pieces of art? I mean, they're, they're quite magnificent, and so uh, in terms of creativity, which I think as humans have always prided ourselves on, it's innovation in a you know, creative way in our, our minds in terms of whether it's poetry or, or uh, you know, paintings that, uh, that we create. But now when you look at some of these, and, and we're in early stages, you're seeing some of these pictures that are being created. It, it's incredible. There was a bit of a spoof done at a, an Amsterdam museum where there was a, a painting put up and they had all kinds of art experts, and I can't remember how far back it was, maybe 10 feet or so, and they, they looked at this and they were calling it the lost Rembrandt, and all these art experts were amazed. Oh, that's cool, where'd you get it? And it was not, it was computer generated based on uh, all kinds of data that you can imagine that you can insert about the, the different colors, the strokes, the shades, and it was created. Anyway, so it, it kind of concerns me a little bit uh, in terms of the human creativity. I, I, you know, we're probably seeing all kinds of ripoffs and you know, new art. And then the other thing I get you to think about is our legislation, no surprise, uh, will uh, award a patent or copyright protection to a natural person. Um, you know, whether or not a machine uh, is, a, is an entity of some sort, it, it begs the question, you know, does he, she, it own intellectual property or is it the, is it the programmer, is it the, the person that created the data sets? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an open question at law and currently the law does not deal with that. Um, there's, there's some jurisdictions that, uh, I think of Saudi Arabia, that created a robot and they said it is a person at law. So maybe that's the first attempt in terms of saying a robot could actually own intellectual property. But currently in our regime, uh, it's, uh, it's an open question. The other thing I would say, is there any, are there any data scientists in the room? 
know. I, I mean, for me, I'm a lawyer, but I work a lot with these people. We act for a lot of the, I, I shouldn't say their names, but a lot of the large AI companies, public and private sector here in Alberta, very proud to act for them. A lot of people, and I, I think it's a marketing gimmick too, RBC doesn't use it, I'm sure, that where people will say it's AI enabled. Well, artificial intelligence is actually, uh, in, in again, I'm not an expert, but in terms of you, you create some code and you have certain outputs and, and you obviously are very aware of you know the code you've written, the outputs that you expect the code to produce, but it's at the point in time where you don't understand anymore the outputs that are being created because then uh, there's actual intelligence in terms of it kind of creating that code on its own without human direction. So you know that's the point in time where you actually get into artificial intelligence. Everything else before that, it's not. Uh, and, and maybe that's good or bad, and I'm just telling you what I've heard from many that are experts in the area. Yeah, so when it comes to sort of like AI and some of the potential challenges or areas that, you know, we have to be, that are almost concerning is when it comes to sort of like the algorithms associated things. So with a few of my clients, you know, we would put out certain pieces of content on social media or put out certain ads on Google. And sometimes we believe that performance, um, which is sort of the degree of creativity. So if I have a photo and I put it out and it underperforms, we would sometimes think it's a bad photo or it's a bad piece of content, um, but really it's also playing into that whole game of like algorithms. So sometimes when it comes to sort of like concerns is we are seeing sort of like a filter through all of our feeds, where these feeds are on like social media, or these feeds that we see on like wherever we Google and we search, we're getting what we want to see from these algorithms and sort of the information, the data these platforms have on us. And so that's always like a concern because if I'm not getting the true picture, um, whether if I search um, what's happening here in Canada or what's happening here in Edmonton, and I'm getting like a filter because the algorithms or the AI says, well, I want to see this piece of information or I want to see this particular piece of content, I'm not getting the true picture. And I think that's something that um, is of concern. And then the other item um, is that whenever we as a community are posting information or posting content, you know, if it's not performing, sometimes we take that down immediately. Or if it's not merely getting that attraction, that hit, we start to get this perception that, oh, well, no one doesn't want to watch my YouTube videos, no one cares. But really, there's a whole science and there's a whole strategy when it comes to sort of content creation or there's a whole science associated with working with these algorithms and playing into that whole space of, you know, navigating kind of putting out information putting out content so I think we have to be as marketers or communicators very aware of those situations so that we can get our messages out there and understand the importance of key messages and those items and it's something that is of a concern and something to be mindful of Okay, well thank you, all three of you, for your, your insights so far on this topic. Now we'd like to open it up to questions from any of you. So what would you like to know from Mark and Robert and Tom uh, related to collaboration in the digital future? Yeah. Stand up, name, name and position. Stand up, name and position, and I'll, I'll uh, repeat the question. <laughs> like, we only have one mic, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Robert, um, Robert, how do 
shoots or video where you're creating unique, amazing content. If you can create what you want, um, I'm curious kind of where you see that going in your industry in particular. Totally. So um, I'm a big fan of like a individual named Gary B, which I'm sure a lot of people know about. And I actually have a very similar mindset where art or creativity that's very subjective to your audience and it's very subjective to the people or the products you're trying to communicate. So, you know, I have seen um, clients um, produce like a to be honest, an ugly, shaky video um, with their phone, and that get garnered so much attention, garnered so much information and attraction, and it performs super well um, in comparison to like a fully polished production video shoot or anything corny. So, in that idea or concept of um, create, what is creativity or the quality? I think that's very subjective, and because of that, what happens is I think it's very important to put out as much content, as much information as much um, photos or whatever your output is as possible and see what resonates with your community, see what resonates with your audience and see what resonates with your customers in order to hopefully produce and fine tune that. You know, one of the benefits and values that's happened because of technology is, you know, digital cameras in the past or giant photo shoots or video shoots used to cost, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. But now you can really produce awesome stuff for a really cheap price. So naturally, it would make sense that because productions are so much cheaper, you'd see a higher volume of content produced. And so now it just comes down to that story. It comes down to sort of, if you're resonating and really speaking to that niche audience and however that medium looks like whether it's digital audio photos or whatever accordingly that's up to your audience to gauge and go from there and and sorry and one other thing too i actually have to cut out early from the q a session i'm sorry sar um but thank you everyone Okay, other questions? Yeah, in the back there. Uh, speaking of the position. <laughs> Most of it. Most of it, Most of it yeah. Okay. Um, talking about intellectual block property and collaboration. Um, I lost my train of thought. If you have a, a, a patents are in place for um, people with ideas or uh, products to be able to conduct uh, research and development without fear of um, losing ownership of that property. Uh, what advice would you have for someone who has an idea but is not a technical expert in that field, uh, but is in need of collaboration? Um, yeah. 
Well, I guess that's for me. Well, I'm, ju I'm just an accountant. So. <laughs> okay, so um, one thing that's important for a patent, not that you want to hear patent law 101, is that um, it not be disclosed uh, it, beyond people that you're intending to, to be disclosed to. So non-disclosure agreements are often used for that purpose. Uh, in Canada and the United States, I'll bore you a little bit, uh, you can disclose, uh, it's not an idea, and I don't mean to jump on your words, but an idea itself is not protectable. Uh, a composition is a mechanical device, is uh, operating systems relative to software, is protectable, much software is not protectable, but just to sort of ground it. Um, but in, in terms of a, again, it's an idea, so I don't mean to, again, uh, denigrate what you said, your starting point, but the invention which of course a patent protects, it has to be maintained confidential. Uh, in Canada and the US, that absolute novelty in the sense that it has to be uh, maintaining that secret, it's still, it's, uh, you can basically have a patent uh, within a year's period. So if you come up with an idea, you create an invention, you disclose it to some people in Canada, you can still have that patent in Canada and the United States, but you're, again, another legal term, you're screwed for the rest of the world because they require absolute novelty with respect to that invention. So you can use the technology in those jurisdictions, but you can't protect it by a patent anymore. But the big, the big secret, and I, I guess you know, in a collaborative world, I get it, right? But you still have to find ways to secure, you know, double, dual authentication of data, etc. Right? You can collaborate around the world using, of course, the the internet, the World Wide Web, etc. But you, you know, you'd have to ensure as best you can that you keep whatever it is that you're inventing uh, confidential. Does that help? Does that hope that answers your question? Okay, great. Oh, is there a question over here? My question is is regarding um, our privacy and our data and it becoming a currency that we kind of use. Um, as he kind of alluded to earlier, he, he talked to the fact that we don't care. But I, I think that that's just because of a lack of information or maybe a, a lack of understanding. And um, I don't think this group is a great group to use as an example because we're all, I mean, clearly interested. But I don't think the majority of the world is. So if money isn't our only currency anymore, um, how are we sort of supposed to protect or let's say, how do we wallet our data? Because I do care. I may not read the 20 pages, but I do care. And I'm kind of starting to worry that the top five companies on earth are misusing it. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. Nope. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a deposition. Yeah, that's, now. A, yeah, that's, a, that's okay. Uh, Mark just said he must out on a $700 opportunity. Damn. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear the concern about what you're saying. And uh, again, uh, from reading a lot of it, and I, I'm a lawyer, so I don't profess to be an expert on matters other than the law, um, but it's important to understand the business as well. So when I say this, it's more from that uh, perspective. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting how the technologies that we have now, uh, say if you had seven pieces of data that describe you, and if you anonymized or pseudonymized, pseudonymized well, that's an easy word, 
weird for me to say, uh, five elements of that data, uh, uh, data scientists would tell you if there's two important elements, they can still identify it as you. So, you know, there is a big concern and people should know that. And, and, and for me as a lawyer, I mean, oftentimes, just generally the advice we give to people, Amir, before you became a big shot business person, you did too, is, is you have to know the nature of the risk that you're assuming when you make a decision. So if you do, that's great. Okay, I'm aware of that. I, my information can be used in these other ways. I think that's fine. But I, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think most people appreciate uh, just how problematic it is. And we, we, you know, I think there's lots of cases we've heard about with Facebook and, and many others. There, uh, you know, the discrimination that happens currently with respect to software. And uh, it, it's, again, the human factor. It's the information that we program, that we load in the data, right? And, and, and there's decisions being made about that. And, and sometimes people are still quite oblivious to uh, the data that they're inserting and how that can be used and come up with conclusions. So there's the, there's the conclusion. There's a quite a famous state uh, a decision in the United States where a certain individual was um, convicted of a crime when it came to sentencing. Apparently the attorney general had used a certain type of software with AI uh, powered capability. And it, when it came to putting the information into this particular program, uh, it said that he was uh, too much of a risk to repeat. So he had to stay and serve a six year sentence. So he thought, oh, okay. He and his lawyer thought, okay, well, I'd like to find out what that algorithm said. Like, well, how did it make that determination? That was denied at the US Supreme Court. There were other reasons. I don't think they're Machiavellian. Um, there were other reasons as well. But but I, I hear you. I, I, you know, I hear, I mean, Bobby's not here. Anyway, so he can't defend himself. I, mean, I, I hear what he's saying. His perspective is important, right? Um, and, and me, I don't think it's because of the age I'm at. You know, in my 50s, you guys are all pretty cool. In 20s and 30s, my daughter who's 19 said, Dad, they won't think you're cool. I, I said, I don't care. I don't think I'm cool. Anyway, <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's just a matter, of, again, I, I think of still thinking about these issues. I'm just not prepared to turn my brain off. Oh, oh shit, you know, stuff happens. Like, we've seen instances of these failures by these major companies that are affecting us. And uh, yeah, I, I, I want it to be as transparent as possible. I, I, hopefully, that's what all all of us are looking to do. I don't have any deep, dark secrets personally. Some people do. And like, frankly, when I get insurance and that kind of thing, I, I want to know on what basis they're making the decision to insure me or not, what my rates are. And if someone, a human, can't explain it to me, even a, a machine, well, I think we're all kind of, I was going to say another legal word, I, you know, it starts with an F. Yeah. That's what needy. It's a podcast. So <laughs> yeah. um, I would just add on this as you know, somebody who's paying attention to tech pretty closely on a regular basis that um, oftentimes we talk about privacy as a thing as opposed to the spectrum. And so there's a lot more about this uh, great website to, to cover this topic is techdirt.com. They write all about mm -hmm. the legal aspects of technology and privacy and intellectual property and things like that. And uh, they argue quite extensively that privacy is a little bit more of a spectrum than we typically think about. It's not all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting to see that become presented in things like Facebook and the other applications are starting to bring some user interfaces and some capabilities forward that allow you to specify where on that spectrum of privacy you want to be for certain audiences. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can believe what he says or not, but at the Facebook developer conference this year, Mark Zuckerberg actually had the audacity to say that the future is private and talked about the future of the product as being privacy focused. And so it's a reaction to, you know, this feeling that we have that, you know, we might not read the thing, but we do care. 
And that's why there are a handful of lawsuits against the big tech giants in the United States around this. Um, it's why companies like Facebook are now reacting in the product realm to try to um, you know, address that consumer concern that they hear. The flip side is, you know, they added like a million users a day in the last financial quarter. So people aren't really turning off their Facebook accounts in protest. And so maybe the change isn't happening as quickly as we'd like it to. And there are 365 days in a year. Yeah. So it tells you the number, that just a sheer number of people who are, in many respects, surrendering their privacy for the sake of, uh, you know, being part of a larger social uh, community. So it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. We still got on time? A couple more questions, yeah, maybe? Do a couple more. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll do here and then, and then there. Thanks so much. Uh, Matt Unger, I run the uh, real estate team. Um, my question is for Mark, actually. Um, I think it's safe to say when it comes to you know youth, and I'm assuming you'll be up to date with all the kind of trends with Gen Z and millennials, that type of thing, that we're in the middle of a mental health epidemic. They're saying, some people are saying upwards of one in three people, or, or one in three youth, Gen Z and millennials, are dealing with a mental illness. And a lot of people are blaming it on the technological advancements, right? Um, but yet at the same time, we're seeing new software and or tech companies popping up daily trying to also cure mental illnesses right I've, I mean I myself have used apps that are using gamification to try to get young people addicted to their app in order to cure their mental illness which is so ironic so I guess the question is as we move forward into the you know fourth industrial revolution can one of the culprits of what people are blaming mental illnesses on also be the solution and what's it look like moving forward I'll try to answer that question Thanks so much. So, sort of men mental well-being is a key uh, plank or pillar within RBC Future Launch because we recognize the prevalence of uh, mental health issues and their prevalence or its prevalence within um, within the youth, uh, the youth segment in particular. And the statistics are, are staggering. And I won't necessarily get into the statistics um, because I think we know, I think we all know individuals who are struggling or have struggled with mental health issues. And one of the things that we're trying to do through RBC Future Launch is to uh, ensure that young people have access to services um, and supports um, before uh, they find themselves in crisis. Many of the programs out there are intended to respond to young people when they are in crisis. And the problem is that there are so many in crisis that the system uh, cannot react to sure volume of, of, uh, of uh, young people. And so, you know, one of the things that we, uh, um, did recently is we tried to understand uh, the proliferation of, of mental health apps that are out there and try to understand the efficacy of some of those uh, of some of those apps and they are across a spectrum from apps that really just focus on wellness to apps that actually masquerade as you know therapeutic and will help young people cope. And that is in itself a problem because if a young person uh, doesn't know and doesn't understand what their stressors are and don't have access to uh, clinical help, 
but turn first and foremost and rely upon a digital solution, they may not get the help that they need and it may amplify the anxiety that they have. And so one of the one of the bodies of work that we're doing, and we're doing this in partnership with an organization, again, collaboration, the Homewood Institute, uh, based in, in Guelph, Ontario, uh, who are working with um, uh, Harvard scientists to begin to understand and map this proliferation of, uh, of apps out there that are available for uh, young people, and I would say more broadly, um, individuals to use to begin to cope and to, 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 to build coping mechanisms to, 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 to deal with their, uh, their, their, their stressors and so on. And unfortunately, uh, because very few of them are reviewed by, uh, you know, very few of them are, are, are reviewed by, you know, uh, mental health practitioners or, or psychologists or sociologists and so on, very few of them pass muster and are therefore considered not to be as effective as perhaps they, they, they could and should be. And so it's a huge issue. Um, and yet there are some tools that work. Um, what we've been doing as well is we've been working with an organization called Kids Help Phone and through RBC Future Launch we've just funded um, a program with them uh, that's called um, Text to Chat where you now instead of just being able to pick the phone up and to talk to a trained counselor and so on, you can actually text a 1-800 number and speak to a trained uh, counselor to address your issues in a way that these apps don't allow you, allow you to do. So technology is great when it works. Um, there's an opportunity to begin to rein in what we see happening in the, in, 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 the, in, in the space as it relates to improving the, you know, the mental health outcomes of, 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 of Canadians, young people in particular, and, you know, there's a lot of work to do. I know it's uh, not uh, mental health, but there might be something instructive. I'm going to walk this back to you. Uh, in some of the research that's been done on things like fitness trackers, and there's been, been some controlled trial studies done on Fitbits, and they found that not only did they not actually increase the number of steps that people took, they actually decreased <laughs> the activity when they stopped using the Fitbit. So I don't know, you know, gamification, some of the same mechanisms are in play there, so maybe we'll get to see some research on that, and hopefully it's not the same outcome. Uh, thank you. My name is Reed Larson. I work for Crespi Strategy as a government relations consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, so there's been a number of great technologies that are based around collaboration and big tech firms, as you've already mentioned, things like Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. A number of these things have been amazing and have built huge communities. However, a number of them have also been weaponized against entire societies and have created massive amounts of social unrest in multiple places in the world. Um, in Canada in particular, we know that they've been used right now in this election period to spread massive amounts of disinformation. I'm really curious as to what your perspective is, particularly from a law kind of perspective. What might be able to be done about that, particularly around policy or curtailing these giants who don't even show up to things like hearings of governments? Mm. Damn, that's a tough one. <laughs> tough question. There's a role for journalism in that, maybe. Well, go ahead. You want what to about talk law? About well, you, you can dive in here. Okay. 
Uh, one thing which is uh, not, uh, I'll answer your question right away, I, I was asked to mention this, is that because we're hosts of this event, and we have something called host liability, we have some taxi chits. I know, sorry that people are going on buses and that, so that, that's cool, right? But if you're not, and you want a, a free ride on Dentons, then uh, I don't know, Dima, do you know where those chits are? Okay, Dima's one of my colleagues. Okay, so they're they're at the back corner. If, if you guys want to just discreetly grab one. Mm -hmm. So sorry, back to, back to your question. I, I mean, it's such a it's such a tough uh, policy question too. It's a legal question, but because of the international scope of your question, that's what makes it tough. You know, one could react how China has right and, and restrict their citizens' access and and decide for us which platforms are okay to uh, use by their citizens, which ones are not. And what transmissions the blocks? We we do know that's one end of the spectrum, right? And I think everyone likes to uh, embrace. I think in our society, uh, you know, internet neutrality and, and the ability of people to make choices on their own, uh, you know, and, and freedom of uh, expression and communication. Right? All the, they're all very laudable matters, but you know, I guess like most things, and that's why the law exists because. Uh, what did Rodney King say? I mean, you know, why can't we all just get along? It is quite valid. I mean, you know, there are bad actors among us, right? And it creates these situations when we have these valuable platforms. Even you were mentioning some, Mark, uh, and I know of some that are very good in the mental health space, but it's also quite polluted with a lot that are not. And, and you know, uh, sad that people would rely on them. But I, I think it's more of a policy and an international legal matter just because, you know, you can't, as we know, stop the internet at the borders unless you take the somewhat drastic uh, measures that China has. Um, you know, there, otherwise, you know, you, you've got the government, and I guess we vote in a government, allow them to make decisions like that on their behalf, okay, we can put those kinds of controls in place. Um, and, and I guess that's where, I don't know, back to media, I, I, you know, I still think it's a very valuable role for you, not that you guys are policemen, you, you, you know, you want to report on police, but you need someone, I, I guess, or an entity or people to collectively, I guess that, that sounds too corny to police those kinds of matters so you can point out the imposters, but as we know, they're getting quite clever in terms of being quite credible in, in terms of the messages they're communicating, and, and to your point, uh, the kinds of decisions people are making based on what could be misinformation. I mean, it's tough, right? It's, it's always been tough to be a good consumer. It's especially tough to be a, a consumer, a good consumer of, of information that you're really trying to understand to make a good decision, you know, and, and it's it's good. There, there's all kinds of social platforms that are that are wonderful that are helping disadvantaged people in the world. But uh, you know, the flip side is there's uh, there's as many bad ones. Sorry, I'm not trying to avoid answering your question, but I, I don't know that I can do better than that. I would I would add on a personal level that you know m misinformation and disinformation have long been co-conspirators in in terms of undermining thriving democracies. What technology uh, now does is it allows the invisible boogeyman and boogie women in the name of uh, uh, of um, disinformation and misinformation uh, to uh, influence um, on a on an unprecedented scale. I would then simply say to that that in the same way that you know the previous um, industrial revolutions heightened our curiosity to understand the advancements that we have made as a civilization 
it is then an, uh, incumbent upon us who live in a democracy to heighten our own sense of curiosity to understand how and where we are consuming uh, information. And if it doesn't feel right, well, it's not right. I think one of the one of the great challenges out there is that we, you know, we're not reading the newspaper anymore. Uh, we are relying, in some respects, we've gotten a bit, I would say, and this is a harsh word, but a bit lazy in terms of how and where we're consuming information. And if we are to get it right, uh, and if we are to ensure that we are rightly informed and in making the right decisions, it means that in this new world of disinformation and so on, we we have to push ourselves a little bit harder to ensure that we are sourcing information from the right sources and, and testing it against uh, testing it against other reasonable sources of information. And if it doesn't feel right, well, then it's then it's not right. You know, someone said to me yesterday that apparently the former president uh, Obama uh, endorsed um, Prime Minister Trudeau um, for the um, uh, in the election. And you know, I, I don't profess to uh, speak on behalf of Canadians when I say this, but I, I then wonder to myself, why is a, a U.S. president weighing into our election? And if you really want to put a finer point on it, um, you know, President Obama um, supported uh, Hillary Clinton uh, for um, three years ago, and the world ended up with um, Trump. <laughs> We're not going to end on Trump, don't worry. Um, I think it's a big question. I, I would just close it by saying um, that uh, I don't agree. I'm a, I'm a technology optimist. I'm pretty optimistic that technology can do a lot of great things. And so I don't agree with everything that um, Andrew Keane says, the, the uh, critic that I mentioned earlier. But his take on this, um, I think, is worth paying attention to. So in the book, he says, technology doesn't solve technological problems. People do. And his five tools for thinking about how we fix the future in his terms or address some of these challenges kind of in order are regulation. So what you're talking about around government and having these officials show up and then passing laws to regulate them. Competitive innovation, social responsibility. So to your point about all of us, making sure that we show up to play each and every day. Uh, worker and consumer choice, and then lastly, education. And that's a little bit of a catch-all in a lot of situations. I do think there's a need for digital literacy, um, but that's not the only thing. And so maybe the takeaway is that there's a combination of factors that need to come together to try to address such a large and sort of systemic uh, change such as that. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tom. Round of applause for our This episode is brought to you by the Sea Tribe Festival. Sea Tribe reimagines the festival experience with the goal of bringing together innovative and creative people and proactive thinkers. By integrating a business conference with music performances, trendy fashion shows, intimate roundtable discussions, culinary experiences, wellness sessions, and artistic activations, Sea Tribe curates inspiring environments that help catalyze action. Thank you.
This episode is also brought to you by RBC Future Launch, a 10-year, $500 million commitment to help Canadian youth prepare for the jobs of tomorrow. They're moving beyond financial investment by engaging the public and private sectors to further understand the issue and make a significant impact on the lives of young Canadians. RBC Future Launch is a catalyst for change, bringing people together to co-create solutions so young people are better prepared for the future of work. Young people today are faced with three critical barriers they need to overcome to be successful. Solutions for lack of experience, solutions for lack of relevant skills, and solutions for lack of professional network and mentoring. Future Launch is a core part of RBC Celebration of Canada 150 and is a result of a two-year of conversations with young Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Thank you.